Welcome to the SaaS Ad Lab podcast where we bring to you the stories of SaaS founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. My name is Luis. I'm the owner and founder of Fancy Agency, a digital marketing agency specializing in scaling SaaS companies. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Jesse. He is the co-founder of GeniusLink. And first of all, thank you so much for making the time to be here. I know it's been a little bit of a wild ride to get this actually in the books, but we finally were able to make it happen. So before I get into anything else, I do want to mention that Jesse was very, very kind to provide anyone that's listened to the podcast. We're a two-month free trial. Typically, it's a 14-day trial, so he went ahead and pretty much quadrupled that for us. So thank you so much for that. And now, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself and kind of how GeniusLink came to be, like the ideas behind it and how everything happened? Yeah, sure. Uh, I hope you're, hope you're comfortable there. It's, a, it's been quite the adventure. Um, the story goes about a little over 10 years ago, I was running a series of websites that took um, soundtracks from extreme sports films, and I was using the iTunes and Amazon affiliate program to monetize those. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, I saw this nice hockey stick growth in traffic, but unfortunately, my revenue was, was growing really slowly. Uh, my aha moment was when I realized that my traffic had really evolved, and a lot of it was now international. Uh, and my oh no moment came shortly afterwards, I realized that the gist was I was sending all those international users to this uh, broken link, more or less. Um, the iTunes store uh, is, is very, it's, since it's digital products, it's very um, black and white in regards to where you can buy. Amazon.com was really focused on um, selling to the U.S. store or to U.S. Uh, residents, et cetera. So when I was sending everyone to Amazon.com or everyone to the U.S. iTunes store, these people from Germany, France, et cetera, just were not getting uh, that experience. They weren't able to shop. And I wasn't able to, to earn. So I kind of led into this whole thought of, well, hmm, maybe these links should be smart and guide people to the best place to buy based off their geography or device or language, et cetera. So um, this was back in 2008, 2009. Um, Ended up kind of taking a little bit of a sidestep away from this project and actually wrote a book about the iTunes affiliate program. Um, Took all my notes from from the websites I was uh, going off of. The iTunes affiliate program was definitely my my big driver of revenue, but just had no documentation. So I figured out a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wrote this book, sent this book off to... uh, a woman I'd found on LinkedIn that um, I thought managed the affiliate program. I thought she was going to be really excited about, you know, getting all these notes about their, their program. Um, and I got a cease and desist email back. <laughs> Ended up, you know, hopping on a, a call with her. Um, it, it took us a little bit. We got things resolved. But the gist was I, would, I wouldn't publish my book until we had a chance to review it. A few weeks later, they offered me a job to actually be the, uh, the global program manager for the affiliate program. So that's took awesome. a little, yeah, it was, it was crazy to go from, essentially kind of working on nights and weekends, being I was a, a whitewater rafting guy, spending a good chunk of my time in Colorado and then Costa Rica. Um, yeah, kind of going from that to, to Cupertino and having you know, a cubicle and a commute. Um, right, but not just that, but also the fact that you kind of went on from being on their blacklist to then taking you on as part of their team. So that's, I think that's a pretty cool story right there. Thank you. Um, well, it, was, it was a great experience. I, you know, I drank the apple Kool-Aid years and years ago, but it was an amazing experience to work on the iTunes marketing team, really kind of see their affiliate program um, from the inside. You know, obviously, I was a big fan. It was making me money from, from my website. So being able to kind of see it. Uh, one of the things I realized looking at it from the inside is that um, this problem I had encountered, I was actually making it worse. We, we expanded uh, not only the iTunes footprint, but the iTunes affiliate program almost threefold while I was, uh, I was working there. And at the same time, I was watching Amazon kind of run into the same issues where they would have uh, country-specific storefronts or region-specific storefronts and then storefront specific affiliate programs. Um, and that works awesome when all your traffic's from one country or region, but like my, my soundtrack websites, that's just not the case really. You get people from all over the world that want to consume mm-hmm. these websites, uh, even if they're in Germany, um, they're still going to US websites, they're still reading websites in English, et cetera. So 
uh, after a couple of years, um, said, said goodbye to the, uh, the comfy corporate life. And uh, we started pushing hard on, on Genius Link. Um, I moved up to Seattle. My uh, best friend, college roommate, uh, was, was at Microsoft. I uh, convinced him that we could uh, build something cool. And uh, it's been a wild ride ever since. And uh, here we are today. So talking about like, kind of how all these things came to happen, um, and, and you being able to, to spend time with people in Cupertino, with, with people on the iTunes team and, and Apple team and, and all those, you know, pretty like heavy hitters, were you able to make any sort of connections with people inside of that company that could later on turn into something else for GeniusLink? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to be very black and white about it, right? Yeah. You can't have, um, competing interests. You got to be focused on it. But that being said, me, really pouring my heart and soul into my job at iTunes uh, allowed me to make some great connections and people kind of saw the character of, of who I was, et cetera. Um, you don't lose friends when you change jobs. You know, I left on, yeah. on great terms. I'm still you know, very much on a, a great, uh, great terms with my old boss. She's amazing. Uh, so yeah, that it was networking is always a super important aspect. Networking inside of your job is incredibly important. You know, you may leave your Rolodex when you leave a job, but you don't leave your LinkedIn. Um, so it's always relatively easy to come and find those connections. Of course, you have to be ethical. You have to make sure that you're not um, not shooting yourself in the foot and you're not doing things that, that aren't cool. Um, when you're when Apple's paying you, you need to be working on Apple stuff. When, you're, yeah. when Apple's not paying you, when you're, you're past that job, then it's okay to, to focus on those things. But yeah, it's it was an incredible experience from the networking side. It was an incredible experience from just what I learned. But yeah, without that time at Apple, without that, that networking, those people that I knew, uh, the company would be in a very different place. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. It's, it's kind of like everything just kind of fell in its own place and then you took it from there, which is awesome. Now, when, when talking about, you know, Genius Link and essentially the, the product that you're putting out and who you're able to service and who can benefit from this, are you pretty much mainly looking for enterprise level deals or do you work with, you know, um, maybe like a one, like a freelance marketer could be using genius link or who is essentially the, 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 the perfect customer for you. Like if you could pretty much put, you know, your, your finger on, on, on someone, who would it be? So we, we love the enterprise deals that come through. Unfortunately, they're, they're slow. Uh, there's not a ton of them, et cetera. They take a long time to put together. Uh, but those are, those are great. I'd much rather have 10 clients that I can spend a ton of time with, know really well, and, and you know, support the full team. Unfortunately, that didn't work for us. Um, I don't have a great, mark or great background in uh, sales. It was really hard for us to kind of go out, quote unquote, hunt whales, uh, mm -hmm. hunt, hunt elephants. Uh, so while we spent time doing that, and we started getting hungry, we started to, to starve a bit. So we ultimately found a way to hunt rabbits, hunt squirrels, hunt deer, uh, <laughs> while we learned how to hunt elephants. So for better or worse, we have our client base is incredibly um, diverse these days, and uh, there's there's pros about that and there's cons about that. It's awesome that it's diverse, so that if one group kind of disappears, there's other groups that kind of right. come in. Uh, on the flip side, it's it makes the marketing message really really challenging. So we found that you know we we can absolutely support a wide variety of clients, uh, but we we really kind of focus on a specific type as far as our outbound and our, our paid advertising, paid marketing goes. So. So that was kind of a political roundabout way. I, I was not specific in my, my answer there. So how, how do you go about, you know, kind of essentially servicing each type of customer when you have a, a really big, you know, enterprise level deal where you have the smaller, maybe like a five team um, kind of deal where it's a smaller in-house team doing everything compared to like a huge team with a lot of different people. How, how would the, the onboarding and, and that sort of thing go differently? For example, I think, 
you know, most companies I would say tend to have like a sweet spot where, where they're like comfortable and, and they want to go after those. And you mentioned that doubt essentially ideally would be, you know, your enterprise level deals. But when you have like such a wide range of different people that could join, how do you then deal with learning how to onboard all these different tiers? That's such a great question. I do not have a, a great answer. It's, we're, we're very, definitely evolving. That's something we, we yeah, we're, we're very much learning. So there's two sides of it, right? There's kind of before, before the account's created and kind of after the account's created. Uh, after the account's created, everyone uh, gets put into a hopper uh, as far as support goes. And you know, I've, I'm a huge believer in support. Um, I think that was the thing that really kind of helped me excel at my, my Apple job is just really focusing in. If someone wants support, it means that they've leaned in actively engaged the sooner you can give them support the more likely you're going to make them successful so i'm i'm a huge fan of making sure that people get the time effort energy if they're a one person team if they're a five person team if they're a five thousand person team granted we do prioritize the people that are, are paying us more etc so if there's you know 10 people on the hopper for support we will definitely get to our biggest clients first um, that being said everyone gets the time of day everyone gets a response i'm a huge believer in that aspect from the front side kind of before the account sign up or really kind of the onboarding that's, we don't have a perfect solution for that. I feel like, you know, I listen to a ton of podcasts, I read a lot, and it seems like every customer is a little bit different. So that makes me feel a little bit better about this, but we'd like to hear your thoughts afterwards on this. But uh, we've essentially allowed our clients to self-select on that to some degree. Um, we used to have three different plans uh, and, you know, kind of based off what plan level you chose and included certain amounts of onboarding. If you were the lowest plan, that was, you know, kind of a, a self-serve model. There really wasn't any onboarding. Of course, you got support, but there wasn't any onboarding. We had the largest plan that we made sure there was some onboarding time. Not everyone would sign up for it. It was kind of you know, as we needed. We went from three plans down to one plan, ran for one plan for 18 months or so, and uh, recently moved to two plans. So now we have a self-serve and we have a business plan. Uh, if you sign up for the self-serve, you know, again, we're happy to support you as much as possible, but we're not actively going to help you onboard, et cetera. Uh, if you do sign up for the business plan, then we are going to make kind of time and effort to, to help onboard you. And we see some really interesting things. We've had you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies go for the self-serve plan because they just want to play with it. They want to poke at it. They don't want to be annoyed. They want to run their own tests by themselves. Mm -hmm. Then we also have, you know, the five people team that's willing to pay the, the business plan, the kind of the enterprise level cost so that they can get active help, you know, making sure they're set up to begin with. Um, so we, yeah, you, you choose, you, the client decide on how much right. love you want from us by choosing how much you want to pay us. Um, and that's seeming to work relatively well there's obviously some kinks to work out but um that's where we're at right now in the evolution what do you think is making that difference between you know a smaller team willing to actually invest in, in something that is bigger maybe than them if you want to call it that and and someone that is an enterprise level that is kind of going a plan that isn't necessarily what would be ideal for them do you think it's more so like that they assume that they're going to need that extra help or that they think that they just want to try that beforehand and then having the ability to obviously upgrade if needed. I think it's, it's where does it fit in their priorities, right? If, if priorities and, and resources, right? If, if figuring out how to make your link smarter is a hair on fire issue, you need to make sure it works for this campaign and you have money to pour at it, then yes, you, you instantly jump up to the business plan. You want someone to, to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. um, if it's not super important, if it's kind of a pet project that you're poking at, and yes, you have a lot of resources, then maybe you'll, you'll start with the, uh, the lower plan, play with it a little bit, get your questions in order, see where the roadblocks are, 
and then you know kind of maybe move up, upgrade the plan, or or kind of reach out for for extra support. So I'd really say yeah, based off your resources, based off of what party is, helps dictate when it makes sense to to bring on or to pay for the resources of onboarding, etc. Um, that being said, and this is a little bit of a tangent, as much as we we try to ensure that there's some uh, some correlation between the money we spend in onboarding and the the money that we're going to get uh, as far as as revenue. I really strongly feel that onboarding shouldn't be completely an operations cost. It should be a little bit of a marketing piece as well. The more people that see you demo your product, even if they're not going to use it, or maybe they're not going to use it extensively, those people putting that seed in the back of their head because we are unique enough, uh, that's paid off in spades as well. We've had clients that we've onboarded, um, didn't really go anywhere, but then a person that saw the onboarding moved to a new job, remembered it, and then brought us in. So it's... Um, yeah, it's kind of a, a guerrilla marketing technique to make sure yeah. that you're doing as many demos as possible. But of course, you have to kind of put some constraints around that as well because uh, a good demo is, is definitely uh, time intensive. A hundred percent. And now that we're talking a little bit more about kind of education and, and onboarding, how are you currently doing that? Does, you know, I, I guess, how do you get people to understand a little bit more about how Genius Link works? Because I think that it's it's, even though there are, I, I believe there are quite a few different companies that do this now. How do you kind of, first of all, differentiate yourself from everyone else out there that is doing some sort of smart link tracking? And essentially, how are you able to explain that to, to your audience? Yeah, again, great questions. Um, and it's something we're definitely evolving. We're definitely learning. Um, from the differentiation, that's, that's a challenge for sure. Um, it's been really interesting watching this, this space evolve. Again, we've been in it for, for nearly a decade now. Um, and we've seen, we see a new competitor show up once a quarter, a real competitor show up out once a quarter. Uh, and my list of competitors continues to get bigger and bigger. That we've kind of <laughs> and it, and I, I think that's, A, it's scary. You know, it's always scary right. having people that you know have to compete with. But I think it also is really. It's good. Yeah, it validates that we're in a space that's growing. And yeah, I definitely believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. So uh, the more people that know that a quote unquote intelligent link, a dynamic link provides more value than a bitly link, mm -hmm. the better off we all are. Um, right. so, so that's one piece. But you're absolutely right. It, there, is, there is an education game. But a lot of people you know, think that a link is static. Um, a lot of people, a little bit tangent here, the web has evolved so drastically over the last 20 years. Uh, marketing technology has followed that and evolved so drastically over the last 20 years. Links have not evolved. Uh, most people think that you know, link technology is moving from a short link and you know, a bitly short link. And that's, that was awesome of bitly to, to kind of push that space a decade ago, but there's so much more you can do with a link these days. So that education piece is really important uh, and it's something we, we push on day in, day out. And uh, it's a challenge. We don't have a great, medium for it, right? Yeah. Uh, our, our outbound is really focused around education. Um, we, we put a lot of time into our knowledge base. Uh, we put a lot of time into um, the messaging, the onboarding sequence for our clients, you know, the kind of cadence of what little tidbits of information we can drop in their inbox or messaging, et cetera. So we have not cracked that nut. I think we're getting better at it, um, but it's definitely, we have not nailed it. There's, there's so much that goes on to it. It's so nuanced um, that, yeah, hopefully we're getting better, but there's a long way to go. Well, now that you have this additional channel, um, you know, why don't you explain a little bit more for the people that are listening, how does Genius Link essentially work? And, and for someone to really understand, I guess, what differentiates you from something like Bitly? That's a great question. So a link is a link, but not really. 
Um, Bitly is an amazing tool. You know, again, hats off to Bitly there. They're definitely the gorilla in this space. Um, Bitly is a static link, which means that everyone goes to the same destination. And that works incredibly well for content. That sucks for commerce. Uh, in commerce, you want to make sure that if someone leans in, has that intent to buy, clicks on that link, you remove as much hurdles, uh, as much friction as possible. Conversion rate uh, is directly correlated to, to friction. If you have someone coming from Germany and you send them to Amazon.com, it's a good chance that that sale is not going to go through. It's the wrong language, it's the wrong currency, shipping is going to be slow, uh, there may be taxes involved, etc. But instead, if you send that person from Germany to Amazon.de, where it's in German, it's in euros, they can use their local Prime account, um, all the VAT is figured into the price, there's probably free shipping, etc. you're more likely to convert on that. So in the world of commerce, you know, paying attention to geography, paying attention to language, paying attention to device, et cetera, helps eliminate that friction. And that's really kind of our, our sweet spot, our focus. We are, quote unquote, smarter links for commerce. We want to help people sell things. We want to help marketers do their job better. We want to take all those web technologies that they've been relying on for the last 20 years and pack them into a link that they can use anywhere and that they'll hopefully use everywhere. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the features, like some of the coolest features that your customers essentially go for uh, when, when they're actually in the platform? Like what is one of the things that you see are being used the most? Excellent question. And again, this is, comes back to one of the problems we have where we have such a diverse client range that um, for different clients, they're, they're different features are, are yeah, lifesavers for them. Um, two of the things that I really have uh, been getting super excited about is one is that we can add uh, pixels into a, into a link. So if you're going from YouTube to Amazon, uh, or from Twitter to eBay, um, you can still set a retargeting pixel and you can still build a custom audience even though you're not going to your website. So that means you can still get the, the really insightful analytics and you can also not lose track of that client as you send them into a third party. So you can do the retargeting, you can kind of build them, you can put them on a list, et cetera. You're not essentially losing them, which is a common fear. Uh, the second one is this, this uh, technology we've been building out called uh, Choice Pages. And a Choice Page is essentially a mobile optimized landing page that allows you to showcase a single product provide multiple different retailers to buy from. And uh, we, we definitely have the thesis that while Amazon is killing it in the US with about 50% market share, that still means that approximately 50% of e-commerce sales are happening outside of Amazon. Mm-hmm. And that's a massive optimization that can be made. So if you're promoting a pair of shoes, yes, you should definitely link to Amazon, but there might be a few other retailers as well, Foot Locker, REI, et cetera, mm-hmm. you might want to include there. So if you can give consumers a little bit of a choice, yes, you're introducing extra click and giving a little bit of choice should help you improve your conversion rate and improve your bottom line uh, and just make your customer a little bit happier in the long run. Um, so you know, that's two of about you know, 15 different features that we offer. Um, now again, we do the different targeting by location, device, language. Uh, we do auto affiliation, we do uh, product translation. Uh, we do stuff with UTM, et cetera. Um, but yeah, again, those are two of the features I like is the, the pixels and the, the choice pages. Awesome. <laughs> I gotta stop myself back and I can stuff for hours. <laughs> No, you're good, man. And, and really, like being a marketer myself, like I understand, you know, what kind of things you have to deal with if you're not using some sort of smart link tracking. Um, and it's really, really cool that essentially you could just only need one link and it could take care of everything for you, which is, and, and, and also for like e-com, like you said, like sending someone to Amazon or something like that, you would lose pretty much all sort of tracking if you weren't using something like this. You're being able to retarget those people can be very, very beneficial, especially for, for people in the e-com space that are, you know, having most of their sales come from Amazon. Um, so I think that's awesome. Now, when it comes to actually growing the company and, and, and really, you know, scaling it and getting to where you are now, what would you say has been the most challenging thing to overcome? 
again, I guess education probably, you know, realizing that there are, are pain points or challenges with traditional linking technology and that, yeah, there's, there's solutions for it. Uh, it took us a long time to, to help people understand that don't just use a straight Amazon link, use a genius link because there's all these other programs or, you know, again, you can set three targeting pixels, whatever it may be. So education has traditionally been one of the, the biggest challenges that once people realize that they have this problem, they're missing on this money from the affiliate program, from whatever, um, they, they're much more um, eager to dive in and to learn the, the platform and start using it. But uh, one of our biggest challenges still is, you know, hey, YouTuber, you have these Amazon links in your description. It looks like you have got a pretty global audience. You need to be doing something about that. And again, right. it's, it's easier now to kind of get past that. But um, most people don't know it's a problem. Um, so it takes a bit to get back. Or they don't think that there's a solution out there. So again, it comes down to the education piece, making them aware of, you know, kind of what they don't know. Um, and, and what about internally as a company? What, what were some of the things that you've struggled with most as, as one of the founders? Um, you know, is it delegating things to people? Is it, you know, kind of knowing who to bring on as a team member? For me, it's been knowing when to keep, keep my hands out of things. I, I love tinkering with stuff. You know, that's, that's why we built the, the company. I, I was fascinated with links, you know, breaking apart links, playing with things. Um, my best friend, our, our CTO, the co-founder, you know, is a great engineer. You know, I love sitting by his side, you know, kind of, oh, let's do this and this and this, and, you know, kind of those pieces of, of working closely together. So as the team has grown, um, it's been really hard for me to take a step back and let the team do what they're good at. Um, everyone, everyone that I work with is way better at doing the stuff than I am, but it's just hard for me not to be involved because I was so passionate and love those pieces. So it's, um, yeah, it's hard moving from an individual contributor to a manager. Uh, that's, for me personally, been, been the biggest challenge. I, I really like getting involved in those projects, but <laughs> not the most efficient thing. I, I need to focus on the CEO things. Mm -hmm. If you could take anything and, and kind of, you know, just do it, if, 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 if anything that was really possible, what, what would the thing be that you would do for Genius Link? Oh, that's so hard. Uh, again, one of the, the best things about the early days is I could wear so many different hats. I could be so involved in so many different things. Um, quick story here. So again, really enjoyed my time at Apple with iTunes. It was, it was fascinating to be there. One of the things that was really frustrating for me is um, there was a, it was a slow feedback loop. Um, there was one project in particular we took six months to do, and it resulted in, in a few pixels being moved around. And that was just, that was so frustrating for me. Um, but that was just kind of, you know, that's what corporate America is, is used to. That's un unfortunately kind of the bits and pieces of it. I love being able to bust my butt on some project and, you know, do the different aspects of that and see the value of that within days, if not weeks. That, that short feedback cycle is, is uh, it's like crack for me, right? You know, it gets me so excited to, to go do the next thing. I just want to you know, keep one a billion on that. I want to keep using those positive feedback loops. They just kind of keep building that momentum. Um, so when I can have my finger on the pulse and make real changes in, in near real time, that's, that's really exciting. That gets me really fired up. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And this is going to be a little bit more of a personal question. Um, and, and, you know, just, just, I guess, be as vulnerable as possible, but what is something that you're not very good at? <laughs> um, there's a lot of things I'm not very good at. Um, I have a hard time taking feedback. I don't want to hear. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I think I'm getting better at that, but that, um, 
one of my first startups that, that definitely doomed us. Um, I have a hard time delegating. I'm not a great manager. Um, I have a hard time focusing. I definitely have shiny object syndrome. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> I have a number of, uh, of faults. Um, mm -hmm. but I think, I think one thing I am relatively good at is being fairly transparent with the team. So the team knows where I have issues and can kind of help correct me. Um, there's a lot of managing up when, in regards to, to dealing with me, which um, is not probably the ideal situation, but it works, I think, relatively well. Um, I don't see anyone in the background shaking their head. Uh, <laughs> that was going to be my next question is now that I ask, you know, what's something you're not very good at, what's something that you're really good at aside from one, being able to pretty much mess with things and, and wanting to be in there and working, you know, uh, for long hours on something that you're very passionate about and also being very transparent. Aside from those two things, what is something that you know and you're very proud of that you're able to accomplish? Um, yeah, those two are definitely, I think, kind of my, if, if I had superpowers, I would, those would be the two superpowers. Um, outside of that, it's probably uh, endurance, um, just being able to keep going, keep pushing. Um, we're, we're a bootstrap company. Um, we've, again, been around for, for a decade now. We've had some crazy highs and some crazy lows. And I think just having the fortitude, the grit to just keep going through some of those lows. You know, we've, yeah, we've had some, some incredibly um, frustrating situations um, that, that have nearly, nearly brought the whole house down. But just you know, being able to kind of be the cheerleader and keep pushing people forward uh, just showing up day in, day out to put a, put a smile on my face and, and show the team that we're still doing some pretty cool stuff, even though it feels like the world is falling in on us. Um, right. I think is, is yeah, probably next on that, that list of superpowers, if, if you want to call it a superpower. <laughs> now, you mentioned, you know, the, 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 obviously the lows that pretty much any startup, any company is going to have. Um, how does how does GDPR play a role in in those smart links? And I, I assume that was maybe part of one of those lows that you thought that maybe things were going to fall apart and stuff like that. So yeah, GDPR was I. GDPR was not a low. Um, okay. GDPR was a was actually a project that I really kind of enjoyed. Um, it was something again that I could kind of step back. I could really focus in on. It was it was a project that was perfect for me to be curious, get my hands dirty, uh, that only I was really qualified for as far as the team went. So I spent probably close to two months um, just doing crazy research, organizing all my notes. I, I read as many articles as I could, came up with a game plan, presented it to the uh, team. Uh, they gave me the thumbs up to go hire some really expensive lawyers, worked with some incredibly talented lawyers to, to figure out exactly what we needed to do. Uh, we did it. We implemented it. Uh, dealt with the privacy policy stuff. Dealt with the uh, safe harbor, or sorry, privacy shield uh, stuff. Uh, and all said and done, it was you know a bit of a sprint for the engineers, which uh, you know they they always complain about, but they I think they really do enjoy a, a little bit of a rush. Um, but we we got you know May twenty fifth last year, we we got the pieces out. Um, I was really proud of the team for for doing That's that. Awesome. You know, fundamentally, I think GDPR is the right thing. Um, there is some frustrations, especially you know with with pixeling, right? You need to get consent before you can set a pixel. Mm -hmm. um, when you're trying to be as transparent and and you know behind the scenes as possible for your clients uh, as a link should be it's really those those things kind of contradict each other but um no gdpr was was a good thing it was a fun project um frustrating at times but i thought it was a, a great opportunity so yeah almost the exact opposite of what 
what awesome. you're doing. That's, that's great news. And uh, as far as marketing goes, what have been some of the best strategies and tactics that have been implemented to growing um, Genius Link? Again, it really goes back to education and just, you know, taking, taking what I know and getting it out there and helping people, um, whether they use our platform or not, just making sure that, that people are using the Amazon affiliate program uh, and being compliant, making sure they're not leaving money on the table, uh, making sure that their, their links aren't being stupid, you know, again, with or without our platform, that means a lot to me. Um, I like to see people succeed. Um, so just putting myself out there in, in the various mediums, the various forums to, to kind of help solve those problems, I think is, has ultimately been one of the best, best ways this has worked out. Even, you know, onboarding, right? We continue to have people that were, you know, worked at, at top clients that leave their job after three or four years and start at other related companies, you know, coming to us. And that's, again, I think an education piece because we yeah. spent time early on really helping them out. So, so yeah, real marketing as far as education. Go ahead. Are there any channels or platforms that you prefer most or yeah, you've seen the most success with? No one specific channel. Um, again, you're, you're talking to the, the CEO that is, um, <laughs> runs a marketing tool company, but is not a great marketer. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never been a good marketer. Um, so, you know, if you were asking our CMO the same question, he would probably say something, something very different. We're, we're finding some pretty good success with, um, uh, with, with paid uh, campaigns via, via Google. You know, the original bread and butter. Um, right. It's taken some time to figure that out, you know, a year to kind of optimize it. But, you know, we, we have a pretty good fine acquisition cost um, and, and uh, retention rate with those. That's awesome. And as far as one piece of advice that you would give to pretty much any sort of SaaS founder or someone that is interested in starting their own company, what would that be? So one of the things that was explained to me early on that I think is still really relevant is that um, there's really two things you can't, you can't mess with anymore. And I guess this is changing a little bit with uh, Elon Musk breaking all the rules, but time and gravity was kind of the, the things that were explained to me, right? Um, you can't mess with gravity, so focus on time. When you start a company and you have time on your side, things work out a lot better. When time is against you, it can be incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. So. I would strongly encourage people to, to dabble in what they want to do first while they have a full-time job or, or at least some way to pay the bills, make sure that their insurance is covered, et cetera. That's time is for you, right? You have as much time as you want, you know, nights and weekends. It sucks that you're putting all your time into your business, but you don't have to hit certain deadlines. You don't have to meet payroll by a certain date. Time is hundred percent on your side. As soon as you make that plunge and, and quit your day job to focus on your, your startup, uh, if you're not profitable, if you're not cash flowing at that point, Time is against you. You only have so much time to get to that next level. Granted, that stress can be a, a huge motivator and you can really kind of push things forward. Uh, but I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in the side hustle first, uh, just so you can really fully understand your market, your place, your position, et cetera, before you really pull the trigger and dive in. That's awesome. That's great advice. And uh, as far as SaaS companies go, do you have any specific one or, or multiple ones that you kind of look up to that you, that you, you know, see as something that you'd maybe want to get to obviously not the the product or anything but just the level um that they're at so the the leadership at intercom um i've i've met des trainer a handful of times i think he's an incredibly brilliant guy um really appreciate every presentation i've seen um was at saster this year and saw some great presentations um i think it was their coo that, that put on uh, one of my favorites so huge fans of of the team there not a huge fan of their product these days, but mm -hmm. definitely I, I think that there's some really smart people there doing some really smart things. Um, 
And then also, you know, Jason Limkin, you know, the grandfather of SAS. Um, I, I really appreciate his, uh, his insights as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. And as far as books, do you like to read? Oh, absolutely. I, I love to read. Um, I have a hard time reading as I, I typically, um, it's late at night or whatnot by the time I actually get to books, I, I tend to, to fall asleep. But books on tape are, are kind of my go-to. Uh, we have um, you know, dogs in the office that need uh, multiple walks a day, you know, the commute in and out. You know, it's a great time to just plug in that, that book on tape and, um, or audio book, I guess, as they're called now. Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of work through those. Um, and in particular, for, uh, this is probably your next question, but the hard thing about hard things is probably the best business book I've, I've okay. ever read. And it's, uh, okay. I've gone through, I've actually read that one from you know, start to finish um, once and listened to the audiobook twice now. Great, that's awesome. And last question, Jesse, do you have any questions for me? I would, I would love to know how, you obviously you're working, you know, you're doing a podcast and it seems to be uh, to catch it on awesomely. So congrats on that. But thank you. We talked a lot about education. What have you found um, as a great medium for, for education is, is it podcast, is it posts on medium, your blog, how, how do you get in front of your ideal client and help educate them? I think there's a lot of different channels where you can do this and a lot of different formats, whether it's podcasting, whether it's blogging, whether it's vlogging. Um, so anything that is able to essentially get a message out into the masses, um, is going to be able to educate. And, and obviously, you know, there's people that like to learn in different ways. You have the visual learners, you have the auditory learners, and then you have, uh, I forgot the third one, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but essentially there's everyone kind of does their own thing. And this is something that you can take from someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Where they have all these different content. And the, the cool thing about him is that he repurposes that. Like he has one big long video that he has, and then he cuts it up into different, in different content pieces and just distributes it throughout all of his social media channels. And what really happens is he has people go to, to blogs and watch videos that kind of educate. So I think that SaaS companies can really learn from that kind of strategy where they have, for example, let's say that you have a demo video um, and, and maybe it's a pre-recorded demo or you just had a demo that you recorded with one of your clients. And really, you're, essentially what you're doing is explaining how to use the product and you know all the benefits, features and stuff like that. What you can do is break up that video into different pieces that kind of walk through everything. And you can leverage you know, things like Facebook advertising and things like that where you can push that video to thousands of people at really the same time while they're learning about the product, you can actually drive them down a funnel literally online. You don't even have to have like landing pages or anything like that, but you're just creating this kind of momentum with all your content where by the time that you actually show them, you know, a, a landing page that is more so calling them to actually sign up, they already know how to use the product. So it's all kind of like an onboarding process online. And by the time they go to the website, they know what they're going to get into. They know how to use the product. They know the benefits, the features. You can also really, you know, hit on objections that people have. Um, a lot of the times people don't trust the company, especially when it's new. So you want to make sure that you kind of provide some sort of social proof, right? So you have, uh, you might be showing, you know, really ads on how to use a product, but is it something that other people like? Is it something that people um, actually use? So what you do is you can follow up with them like retargeting, right? So what you would do is follow up with those people with different ads that are kind of calling that are kind of hitting on it specifically on those objections that they have, whether it's that they don't necessarily trust the company. So you hit them with social proof ads um, and so on. So you're kind of like going after everything that they would use to say no to your product mm. and give them a reason why it's right. And then when they're ready, they kind of have gone through that whole funnel. They really don't have any other reason not to say no. 
Um, and if they do, then that's when you kind of give them that extra incentive that is usually monetary where you give them a 15% off or whatever it may be to actually get them to sign up. Um, and then it comes down to just all your onboarding pieces where it would be, you know, more education that mm -hmm. maybe has not been uh, touched on in those other videos or content pieces that you're pushing. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for being on here, Jesse. It was really a pleasure having you. Um, and uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And where can people find you online? Um, so obviously the website, geni.us, um, the contact form there. Uh, I try to stay off Facebook as much as possible, but I'm, I definitely have a bit of a presence there. And then of course, Twitter, um, at Jesse Lakes. Awesome. And uh, for anyone who's watching, make sure to subscribe to the, to the YouTube channel. You can listen to the podcast on pretty much any major streaming platform. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. It was really, really fun. And uh, just make sure that you go out there and do something, whether you're side hustling or you want to start right off you know, from scratch and, and, and get your feet wet and, and whatever it may be, just do something great that you're going to enjoy uh, and make sure you love whatever it is that you're doing. So thank you so much for being on here, Jesse, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Awesome. Cheers.